This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. This is Radio Lab. I'm Lulu Miller here with trusty co-host hey. Latif Nasser. Latif, you know, occasionally we'll break from our regular scheduled pontiferous programming to report on actual, you know, news. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm here to do that. Okay. And the topic is... Britney Spears. Uh, that's that's sort of uncanny because I like I got a push alert about Britney Spears like ten minutes ago. Okay, yeah. So I think most people in the past few weeks have probably seen Britney's name or face everywhere. Basically, for thirteen years, she has been living under a conservatorship, a legal arrangement where somebody who is deemed to be unable to take care of themselves has their decision making powers given over to somebody else. Right. For many years, there's been growing speculation that maybe Britney Spears was not happy under this arrangement, possibly being exploited or abused. But for a while, that was kind of like this fringy conspiracy theory vibe. Mm. And then a couple weeks ago on June 23rd, she finally spoke out. Okay, so I have this written down. I have a lot to say. So um, bear with me. Um Basically, a lot has happened since two years ago, the last time I wrote all this down, um, the last time I was in court. I will be honest with you, I haven't been back to court in a long time because I don't think I was heard on any level when I came to court the last time. I brought four sheets of paper Um, in my hand. And very clearly said, I want out of the conservatorship. I'm being financially exploited. I'm being forced to work. I'm being cut off from communicating with friends. And at one point, She even said, I was told right now in the conservatorship, I'm not able to get married or have a baby. I have a um, ID inside of myself right now so I don't get pregnant. I wanted to take the ID out so I could start trying to have another baby. But this so-called team won't let me go to the doctor to take it out because they they don't want me to have children, any more children. Whoa, that's like another level. Yeah. And I should say that part hasn't been verified but in the state I mean, if you know, it is in the true state, it feels like a whole nother level like it feels like a violation sort of like in your in your body in a way yeah like, but here's the wild thing like whether or not her conservators have done this to her they likely legally could hmm. and the same goes for many of the estimated 1.3 million people in our country living under conservatorships or guardianships no um, Oh, yeah, this is way bigger than Britney. It's a lot of people. Oh, my God. 
And part of the reason why so many hundreds of thousands of people can have their reproductive rights denied goes back in a very weird way to Darwin. Huh. Or specifically to a really twisted, corrupted misinterpretation of Darwin's ideas that was so successfully hawked to politicians and educators and lawyers and judges all over our country that we still find it exerting real force in our legal system today. I feel ganged up on and I feel bullied and I feel left out and alone. And I'm tired of feeling alone. I deserve to have the same rights as anybody does by having a child, a family, any of those things. And the whole eerie story of how our country came to prevent certain people from having kids is something that Radiolab explored in an episode a few years ago called Unfit. Right. And I thought now might be a good time to listen back. Okay. Do it. Great. So all you really need to know is that this was originally part of this series on intelligence called G, hosted by Pat Walters. So you'll hear him in there from time to time. Hi, Pat. And as I explained to Jad, I'm going to kick off the whole story with a man named Mark Bold. Mark Bold. Mark Bold. B-O-L-D Bold. Nice to meet you. B-O-L-D Bold. Oh, not at all. I was like... He's the director of the Christian Law Institute, and I met him at his offices in Lynchburg, Virginia. He's a big guy, bald head, bright blue eyes, kind of baby face. Yeah, okay, so I guess take me back to law school. Set the scene. How sure. old are you? Where are you? Yeah, how old am I? Um, it's got to be... Say about 39. So uh, back in 2010, he was in law school. Went to Liberty University School of Law. It was his first year of law school. He was taking this class. Called Foundations. It's just some of these foundational laws that we have. Some of the basics. Brown versus Board of Education. Roe v. Wade. And so. He had this moment that like we have all probably had. This moment where you're sitting in class and you're kind of tuning out. And then you hear something that's like, what? What did, what did they just say? Yeah, yeah. His professor had just mentioned the Supreme Court case. Buck versus Bell. Buck v. Bell. Wasn't Buck v. Bell in, uh, enforced sterilization? Yes. I never heard of the case, but that uh, it's a case in, I would say, 1927. It originally started, and the Supreme Court held eight to one. That it is legal for a state to forcibly sterilize its own citizens who are deemed, quote-unquote, unfit. Three, three generations of imbeciles. Is that, is that from this it's case? It's that case. Exactly. This is Oliver Holmes, right? Exactly. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. And I was blown away by that decision. It reminded me of Germany, kind of Nazi, this idea that we're going to, you know, forcibly sterilize our citizens. It's constitutional to do that for the betterment of its citizens, for the betterment of society. But the thing that really shocked him the most, which, again, you might also be aware because you are a now legal <laughs> scholar nerd, <laughs> but that I didn't know when I first heard about this about two years ago, is that Buck v. Bell has never been overturned. Hmm. And he's like— just. Totally dumbfounded, if you will. That like, we how could this still be on the books? Well, I, I feel like I should say that, like, if you look at the law, you will find that there are all kinds of bad rulings like that. These these terrible laws from our horrible past that have somehow stuck around. But the idea is that no one's going to act on it. It's just it's just sitting there. So that in theory. OK, so that soundbite, what you just said, nobody's going to act on it. In theory. Mm. That wasn't enough for Mark. I became obsessed with it. Obsessed with 
wanting to know more about Buck versus Bell. Where does it stand today? And that question Hi, this is Mark. I would end up sending Mark off on this journey. Find out what steps I'm going to do a motion for sterilization. To these places in America, to these people in America. Yes, you got to go. Where Buck v. Bell has not stayed buried in some book. What was was she housed in here or sterilized? Where this case has been very alive. And kicking. I'm Pat Walters, and this is episode four of G, a Radio Lab miniseries. And today we're going to feature this story from Lulu about sterilization laws in the United States because it uncovers a very dark side to our attempts to measure the human mind and fit people into boxes and reaches out into the present day in ways I honestly never expected. And also, because the story of how we got to Buck v. Bell is all tangled up in the history of the IQ test that we got into in our first episode. And it begins with this guy who sort of looms over all of it. A guy I first heard about from writer Siddhartha Mukherjee. Francis Galton. Yes, Galton, this British gentleman in the... 1880s. That is historian Paul Lombardo. Anyway, Francis Galton, he was this British scientist, kind of a polymath. Categorizer of all things. Categorizer of all things. Yeah. Great measure. I mean, he apparently walked around uh, London with a uh, pin in his pocket and a piece of paper quantifying the number of women that he found uh, were attractive. Yeah. On on the left side of his pocket, on it's an apocryphal story. Mm-hmm. And on the right side, the people, women that he did not find attractive to get a statistical measure uh, of attractiveness. He was like upset. He measured he was, everything. He measured everything. He just the measured size everything. of a skull, the you know height of humans. And the other thing, kind of crazy thing, is that he was related to Charles Darwin. They were cousins. And when Darwin publishes his opus on the origin of species, Francis Galton picks up his cousin's book, gives it a little skim, and. Like, it completely shook him. And his idea was that this mysterious force of natural selection, which seems to kind of invisibly, naturally shape creatures into their most perfect forms, man could harness this and do the work of nature, but faster and better. Because through his measuring, his statistics, his research, Galton had become convinced that it wasn't just, you know, like physical traits that got passed down from generation to generation. But also mental traits, the ability to think clearly, the ability to remember well. Galton was certain. All those things could be inherited. And not just physical and mental, but... Moral characteristics and and traits could be inherited. Galton's idea was that if you could measure everything, if you could measure these human qualities, then you could breed people just like you bred animals. Breed for the traits you want, breed out the ones you don't. If you did this selectively, he, he really thought that he would make a better human race. And he comes up with a word. Eugenics. Which is Greek for good birth. Is that what eugenics means? Yeah. He wants eugenics to be a program of uh, better breeding. So he starts, you know, touring Europe, giving these lectures on this idea of how you could create a happier, healthier society. Uh, and he publishes magazine, you know, he publishes magazine articles about it. Did he ever describe his uh, vision for how this would work? Like practically, like how he'd go about doing it? Yes. Yeah. He, this part I feel like less people know about, he actually goes and writes a sci fi novel. 
hmm. called Can't Say Where. Can't Say Where. Yeah. Interesting. He never published it. But his, and then after he died, his niece tried to destroy it. But a lot of it has been salvaged and typed up. Do you want to hear some of it? I actually have it. Yeah, totally. I should say, I really am tempted to do this in a Brit- fake British accent, but what do you think? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, okay. Okay, so I should say that they lay much stress on the aesthetic side of things at Can't Say Where. So it's set in a fictional town called Can't Say Where. Grace and thoroughness is a motto carved over one of the houses for girls in the college. And the physique of the girls... Like the people themselves of Can't Say Where, he describes them as promising mothers of a noble race. The the good stock. As for the men, they are well-built, practiced both in military drill and athletics. They're very handsome and virile, but very modestly dressed. Gay without frivolity. Friendly without gush and intelligent without brilliancy. They never, they never gossip. A loutish boy and an awkward girl hardly exist in this place. And the reason why people are so perfect in Can't Say Where is that everyone who enters the society has to take these tests. They have to take all sorts of physical tests, medical tests, and athletic tests, aesthetic tests. And if you do well, you're given all this money and encouraged to have tons of babies. But if you don't do well, such persons are undesirable as individuals and dangerous to the community. You are sent to a labor camp, told you are never allowed to have babies, and if you do, a crime against the state. It is considered a criminal act, owing to the practical certainty that they will propagate their kind if unchecked. So Galton's toying around with this fanciful idea but People thought this was a very good idea. Sort of caught fire. Intellectual scholars, scientists came to celebrate this idea. And this is how you get to the Nazis, right? I mean, this went right into the Nazis. Oh, my friend, it went to Americans first. So this was something I did not realize at all. There was a huge eugenics craze in America in the hmm. early 1900s. And what historians have explained is that there were all these things going on, uh, there was this wave of immigration. You know, it's just after the Civil War, so there were freed enslaved people integrating into society. There were Christians freaking out about crime and promiscuity and drinking. And so all kinds of people, really important people, thought that these things were problems and that the way to solve it was eugenics. And uh, one of these people is whom I'm writing a book about. This is how I crashed oh, into all this. Oh, this is your Stanford guy. By the way, Lula's writing a book. It's coming out soon. It's about this guy, David Starr Jordan. Yeah. So my dude was like one of the earliest, right. loudest, most powerful proponents of eugenics. Got it. You can see like in the late 1800s, which is decades before most American eugenicists got the fever, he's slipping it into his courses at Stanford. So he's like telling smart people, Mm. these ideas that poverty is linked to the blood and can be exterminated. Mm. He would trot these ideas out in front of like Benjamin Franklin's 200th birthday party in the late 1800s, where there's hundreds of politicians gathered. And he says, you know, this is a matter of life and death for the nation. And he said the the, the republic will endure only as long as the human harvest is good. That's a horrible And phrase. he wrote, this is a book. This is, okay, I swear we're almost done. We're almost done with the history. But um, then he decided to write a whole book about it. He called. He wrote a book called The Human Harvest? I'm holding oh. it right here. That's and what it's, a horrible title. It's, 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 and it's, it's, it's horrible inside. He tells, to scare people, he tells people about this town in Italy called Aosta, which for about 
1300 years was this sort of refuge for people, you know, with disabilities or deformities. People would send them there and the church would take care of them. And then they can often get married and they work the fields and have families and they're helped by the church. And some people see that as this beautiful tale of like helping society's most vulnerable. And he went there and he wrote about it as a veritable chamber of horrors. Mm. Basically, he says, he describes the people living there and say they have less decency than the pig. And he, he like says that it's a different, it's a subspecies of human. And he says, this is where, you know, America is going to be going if we don't take action. Let me tell you. Oh, yeah. So where are we? Yeah, we we pulled in. I don't know if you really saw the the gate, the entrance. Which um, we totally did. So that day that I was with Mark Bold, he drove me to this place that is just a couple miles from his office. It's called the Central Virginia Training Center. The training center. It's it's ominous. It is. Um, it is so this campus on a hilltop. Very old buildings. With dozens of brick buildings. You see the kind of Roman columns there. There's tall turrets, but they're all starting to rot. Starting to become dilapidated, as you can see. These are some of the first buildings. There's acres and acres and acres here. And at one point, this place was a very real version of Galton's sci-fi dream. Okay, so yeah, what, what does this say? Yep, so this is established in 1910 as the Virginia State Epileptic Colony. The center admitted its first patients in May 1911. The facility originally served persons with epilepsy and began accepting individuals with mental retardation in 1913. So very little on there about the sort of sins of of what they've done in the past. Exactly. Nothing in there. It was established in 1910 really as a eugenics facility and a col- notice they call it a colony really for the epileptic and quote feeble-minded um, there's nothing in there that really talks about its its main purpose was to um, house individuals from the community and, and strip them from society and put them here so they don't propagate their kind that's really the the fundamental reason for its existence. And this colony wasn't, like, alone. There were tons of them popping up all over the country, like these high-walled holding tanks where people would be kept away from the rest of society and, in some cases, sterilized. Which, when you think about what that really is, it's a form of extermination, like slowly wiping out a certain kind of person. People with disabilities, people with mental illness, people who were immigrants, people of color, because they were all seen as not good birds. So this is Ivanova Smith, an activist, advocate, and historian at the University of Washington. And And she explained that people who arrived at these sorts of colonies would be given extensive tests. And they had different categories, and they used this concept called mental age theory to explain these different categories of moron, imbecile, and idiot. And these were all diagnostic terms that were used to put us in institutions, and they were used to justify us be sterilized. So you said us. Yes. What do you mean by that? Oh, I, so I, I identify with the intellectual disability community. I would have probably been, uh, back then, I would have been put in the moron category. I'm autistic and I have intellectual disabilities. Do you think in the eugenicist day, like, would you have been someone who was sterilized? I think I would have because... Uh, they, they, they actually encouraged the sterilization of morons in the early 20th century because 
we were more likely to be sexually active and, you know, getting, you know, finding boys, uh, boys finding girls, you know. Which brings us back to Buck v. Bell. What? Was, was she housed in here or sterilized? And in particular, Buck. So Carrie Buck was a girl who grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was born in 1906, and she was mostly raised by her foster parents. She lived a kind of totally normal childhood, sang in the church choir, went to school. But when she was 17, she says she was raped, and she became pregnant out of wedlock. And as a result, her foster parents sent her to the Central Virginia Training Center, which in those days was called the Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. And when she got there, she met this guy, the superintendent, named Albert Pretty. So Albert Pretty was a passionate eugenicist. And at the time, 1924, there was starting to be some pushback uh, about eugenics from churches, social institutions, politicians. And so Pretty was on the hunt for the case that would help to legalize eugenic sterilization at the national level. And when Pretty met Carrie, he felt like he had hit the jackpot because he realized her mom was there at the colony. Her name was Emma Buck, and she was allegedly a prostitute. So he had Carrie tested, deemed her feeble-minded. And then when he heard that a social worker had called Carrie Buck's baby, the product of this rape, peculiar, he believed he had on his hands proof that feeble-mindedness or unfittedness is linked to the blood. Hmm. So he found her. He gives a, he arranges to have a lawyer appointed to her. You have to get a before you're sterilized, you have like a mini trial. And so the lawyer appointed to her was this guy Whitehead, likely a eugenicist himself, didn't give her a good defense, didn't call forward any witnesses, then makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court where we get that ruling. Three um, imbeciles. OK, so those are the three. I yeah, are Emma, Carrie and Vivian. Hmm. It was three real people. And um, and did Buck v. Bell make it nationalized that we, you could sterilize? Yes. I see. So her case paved the way for over 60,000 sterilizations oh. performed all over the country. And that ruling still sits on the books today, never overturned. Wow. All right. Knuckle crack. We have made it through that horrific history. So we're coming back to, to bold. We're coming back to bold. So bold is sitting in law school and he's like, what? Exactly. Just totally dumbfounded, if you will, that we... And so he goes to his professor, and he's like, how how has this never been overturned? And and then the professor says, every state has since overturned it. All the states repealed their laws. So it, it hasn't been overturned because we don't have another, quote, case or controversy before us. Which is, you know, the thing that, like, all the legal scholars say, which is like, well, technically, <laughs> it's in this kind of purgatory. Don't worry. <laughs> You're being paranoid. <laughs> you couldn't actually get sterilized because <laughs> you're looking for a thing. Okay. Well, well okay. But just to sort of like uh, honor, put, them? honor those legal scholars for a second. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stupid, stupid rulings. Right. Like Korematsu. Right. Which we did a big thing about. Right. Which basically like round up a whole bunch of citizens that are American citizens but are Japanese, Japanese-American, for no other reason than they're Japanese. That's constitutionally wrong, but they did it, and it's still technically good law. So it's kind of in that like, oh, that sucked, yeah. but the, the limbo. The limbo? Were you, sorry, I, I thought I was I like, you're going to say limbo. <laughs> No, so it's like, I mean, there are other cases. There are other really terrible decisions that are in that space. So that, tons of people said that to him. 
to, to bold. To bold, to Mark okay. Bold, but bold. I became obsessed with it. He just wasn't convinced that this thing was dead. So I would, uh, a lot of my free time, if you could say that, as if you don't have enough to do in law school, right? Just started searching the, the code of each state using keywords of feeble-minded and undesirable and sterilization and eugenics. And so he started looking at each and every state law, and he did it alphabetically. Alabama, then Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, going through all the codes and searching. New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Vermont, Virginia, Washington. And then finally, he gets to West Virginia. And there he sees it in the West Virginia statute, chapter 27. Article 16, entitled Sterilization of Mental Defectives. It's talking about sterilization for the best interest of society. Was this, wait. This was still in the books. Still in the books. It's the year 2012. Totally dumbfounded. I was like, I'm... Um, so there was something in the code that basically still said yeah. y- you could be forcibly sterilized if you were unfit. Something or exactly, yeah, yeah. If you're considered feeble-minded, um, then you, in the best interest of society, you can be sterilized. Wow, like oversight, or was well, it in so, use? Right. So he didn't know. What I did is I wanted to find out: Do we still do that? Uh, if I was a father uh, of a child who had a disability, some type of intellectual disability. Can I forcibly sterilize my daughter? And I made sure so he like gets himself in a zone where he wants to pretend that he has an adult daughter over the age of twenty-one, who he wants to sterilize. So I called this circuit court. So what well, he was he was pretending. So he was doing kind of like a sting, like a one-man sting. Like yes. let me see if I call the state house and say I have a daughter who wants who I, I want to sterilize. Possible? Will you do it for me, or yes. is that legal? Yes. And he records the call if you would like to hear it. Playing it. Yes, is yeah, there, please. She's on the phone. Do you want to hold? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So I think he called. I think this might be the second time. Hey, this is Mark. I talked to you earlier this morning here when I was driving. Um, you called and you told me to call you back if I had any questions or, or what have you. It was in regards to uh, my handicapped daughter and the sterilization. Yes, yes, okay. Yes. So I'm now having the chance to obviously sit down at the desk here. I took some time off work and wanted to. Find out what steps. You're going to do a motion for sterilization. What? And you're going to tell the judge the reason why you need that done and, you know, the situation. And then it'll come to me. I'll set a hearing. You guys have a hearing on it. And the judge will make the decision, which more, most of the times, you know, they know that this needs to be done. So I don't think that you're going to have a problem, you know. Okay. Not, yeah. And then we'll set a hearing as soon as I okay. get it. I'll get it to Paul, and she'll give you a call. I'll just write a letter? Is that what I need to do? Yes. Wait, she says most of the time, the judge... Yeah. And this was 2012? Yeah. You're going to do a motion. M, write your daughter's name, then under that motion for... And then write out what you need. Okay, so I'll say Maybe motion... You put your number on the bottom where we can reach it. Okay, this is not a... We're not going to be the first one to do this, okay? That's why, because no, to us, we feel weird not. about it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just. Oh no, sir! You're absolutely not the first ones. A lot of you have, this has to be done because we have so many problems with. Yeah, you have to do this. It's, it's for her best. Yeah. Exactly. I don't think people understand this type. You know, these oh, type no, of people—they're no, 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 difficult. Are, no, no. Is you are doing the best thing 
problem is is when we get some that don't do it and then it's a problem, you know, that has to be dealt with. But no, sir, you are doing what okay. you're supposed to do. Okay. You're Basically, correct. the answer is a resounding yes. It needs to be done. It's common. Don't worry about it. I even I was concerned. Well, what if people know? Would my neighbors know? No, it's sealed. You just send it straight to me, and I'll get every pull the file and get everything taken care of. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. All right. Bye bye now. Uh-huh, bye bye. Get the f- out. Did yeah. I just hear that? Yeah. That's so this, insane. Yeah. So, really quick, a couple of things. First of all, to be fair to her. It is not officially her job to judge whether or not someone should be sterilized. It's her job to get that question to a judge. And second of all, there is a legal difference between sterilizing someone for eugenic purposes, for the good of society, like there's something wrong with them that may be passed down to the next generation and threaten the race, versus sterilizing someone for their own quote-unquote best interests. And there actually are a number of states today that allow for a parent or guardian to have their disabled child sterilized for medical purposes, even if that person doesn't give consent. Oh, because if they have a child, they might die kind of a thing? Yeah, and some of the laws even talk about that person's inability to adequately care for a child. So that's... Do you you think the woman who is responding to Mark saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done this before with that kind of case in mind or with the more eugenics-y flavored case in mind? Honestly, I don't I don't know. I was able to find her, but she said she couldn't comment on this case for the story. And numbers of how frequently sterilizations are done are really hard to find. Um, but what is clear is that at the time of that call, the law as it was written in the books, one of the reasons why a judge could approve of a sterilization procedure is, and I quote, that the individual is mentally impaired and that such defect is of a genetic nature that is likely to be passed on to any children, which is just pure eugenic reasoning. Right. So it's that general welfare. What's in the best interest of society? It's not about what's in the person's best interest. And so I found it disturbing. So he was horrified. And I wanted to put the nail in the coffin. But he also, this was kind of his like hero genesis moment. What I did is put out a press release. In a sense, I was wanting to pick a fight. <laughs> the Christian Law Institute's considering suing West Virginia, et cetera, you know, over its um, uh, eugenics for sterilization law. Um, the Charleston uh, Gazette picked it up. And his idea was? I was really hoping that the state would, in a sense, defend it, that we can together get it before the Supreme Court and said, hey, let's overturn this. So his dream was like, I'm going to reach out to West Virginia and say, let's do this thing. Mm. And you defend the law, and then we'll get it to the Supreme Court. Wait, so his his legal strategy was sue it. Make them make uphold sure, it. Uh, like on appeal, it gets upheld or something, and it just kind of works its way up. Yeah. But right after the article came out. It went before the legislature, and they just unanimously repealed it. Oh, it was, <laughs> oh so, how fast did that happen? I just was notified of, of that uh, probably about a couple months after. They immediately overturn the law because they were like, we're West Virginia. We don't want to be seen as upholding mm-hmm. eugenic sterilization. Mm-hmm. So great for the people of West Virginia, but Mark's bigger plan to overturn Buck v. Bell was foiled. Mm. And so he starts thinking, all right, if I can't find justice for people in the future, could I reach back into the past and find it there? And we'll join him on that search after a quick break. Thank you. 
Hey Radio Lab, it's Audrey calling from Asheville, North Carolina. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Radiolab. Uh, we're back with Lulu Miller's story for G. Before the break, Mark Bold had gotten his West Virginia law struck down, which he was uh, excited about, but it also meant he couldn't use it to challenge Buck v. Bell at the Supreme Court. Back to Lulu. All right. So Mark starts noticing that West Virginia wasn't some kind of outlier. There were all these other states that had their eugenic sterilization laws on the books until the 80s, 90s, 2000s. So I started looking into finding victims. Is, it, is there somebody alive? You know, or you just go to thinking he could maybe do something to help them, get them some money, something. And pretty quickly, he found some people. Good to see you. Good to see oh, you, too. He introduced me to a bunch of them, including this one woman, Anna Seal. I don't know how you feel about pie. Co- coconut cream. Who lives just a couple miles from the Central Virginia Training Center, which is the colony where Carrie Buck was sterilized. She's got a sunny two-bedroom apartment. so nice in here. Full of plants. Is that a bird? Yeah. With two birds, actually. And her best friend, Mary, who she met at the Virginia colony when she was young. Small. We were little kids, and um, so we had nothing but beans, and um, pork and beans, had pork and beans, one who was small every night. Just a and explained like that. that growing up, her family was really poor, and things with her parents were bad. Daddy drank all the time. And, uh, she, she said that she and her brothers like often didn't have any clothes. We had no clothes, but they would have. And at one point, one of the neighbors reported that the kids were living in a pen behind the house. It was cold when it heated up. And pretty soon the authorities came to take them away. Anna was seven. Do you remember that? Or did they come in like a police car or a truck or? A prank car. She and her brothers were driven to the Central Virginia Training Center. She was given a bunch of tests and they decided that Anna was feeble-minded. Feeble-minded. We taught it. Yeah. They issued her an inmate number. 
cut her hair. I didn't want, I didn't want to happen. And they were often forced to wait outside in the cold rain to wait for food. They had to work with no pay. Years went by, and Anna was told she could leave, just agree to be sterilized. But she said no. She had always wanted to have kids, and so she said no. And ironically, all that time, her job at the colony was to care for kids. I just give them a bath, you know, have to give them a bath every night. You would give them a bath? Can't take care of yourself. I love kids, but I want, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And one day, when she was 19 years old, two nurses came and said they were going to give her a checkup, and they gave she gave her a mask of what she thinks was ether, and she felt the world slipping away, and she was like, she figured she was being euthanized. I, I was gone, and I, I thought I was going to wake up. She thought that this was it? But I woke up. And and did you know when you woke up what had happened? No. Uh-uh. What is it? Is it still, do you still have a scar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got a scar. I'll think about it every day, you know. You do. So over about two years, Mark found about a dozen people who'd been sterilized in Virginia. I would just sit there and weep, you know, with my... As I listened to them tell their stories about how they were taken from their families and and what happened here and, you know... So he goes down to the Virginia State Assembly, General Assembly, and he brings them, brings Anna with him. She remembers it. So what he wants at this point is an apology? Yes. He wants a bill to get some type of compensation for victims who are forcibly sterilized. So he goes down to the Virginia state government and he makes this appeal. He says Virginia was where the first Supreme Court sanctioned sterilization happened. Virginia should be the first to compensate its victims. And they basically pass. Like as in no thank you. Yeah. What did what did they say? Well, Mark, in his opinion, he thinks it was pretty much about uh, money. They call themselves conservative, but they're so fiscally conservative. He says that one of the things that was so frustrating about this was that he didn't really have the support of, like, his people. Um, People who, I'm Republican, just just for what it's worth. We have this idea of pro-family, and here you have these guys at least champion that. I'm like, what more of a pro-family? How about the right to have a family? You know know what I'm saying? If you say you're pro-family, you know, you're pro-life, how about the right to give life? You know what I'm saying? And so it just seemed so hypocritical to me. I just find it. A repugnant still makes me angry to, to this day, right? Yeah, your face just yeah. changed. It's like a deep yeah. soul oh, disappointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because again, these victims. The House budget set aside about. But just a few months later, Mark Bold with the Justice for Sterilization Victims Project. He and a team of lawmakers and activists convinced North Carolina to pass a bill. Providing relief to those citizens that this state has injured is the just and righteous thing to do. Time is running out. And they award everyone who's been sterilized $50,000, and they say they're sorry. And then a couple years later, Virginia passes it, but then Virginia only gives $25,000, which he just felt like was such an unnecessary slight. But for Anna... We got paid. So what does that mean? Is it like... It helps. She gets about $50 a week, and she uses it to help with the groceries, with bills. And, and she used a chunk of it to treat her friend married to a present. Oh, hello, little guy. 
Don't think you made one. Okay. It's fast. After Mary had got some hard news, she went out and got her a hamster. Who's that? Sugarfoot. Sugarpuff? Sugarfoot. Just to cheer her up. Anna spends her time hanging out with her neighbors. She goes to church. She feeds her birds. Did you do that one? Yeah, I did these right here. Oh, yeah. She colors. Okay, and what's this guy? A bear. Surfing. <laughs> yeah, and all he, and bear too. And his, this one's kayaking. <laughs> Wow, and they're really bright. So is that and she grand? takes care of her best friend, Mary. You know, when I was there, she was constantly getting up to refill Mary's drink. Mary walks with a cane now, and Anna kept refreshing her glass of iced tea. Um, she even set up Mary with her most recent boyfriend. Him? How'd you know him? How'd you meet him? I just, he said, looking for a friend. I said, Mary, be your friend. <laughs> you said, not me. But as much as this apartment is filled with laughter and life, You can still see that this loss, this theft, really, she carries it. Okay, so what? So that? So what are we looking at? We we've got dogs, doll babies, doll babies on your bed, a boy and a girl. Uh huh. Do they have names? Yeah. What are their names? That's uh, that's Bobby. Bobby. That's a little Mary. So that's Mary, and well, who's this? Anna. And whose is yours? This mine right here. Yours is Mary. This is Mary. And Mary's is in. Yeah, Anna. And so there, she says she brings a doll with her to church on the bus. Do you bring her, like, shopping, grocery store? Oh, I take her everywhere. I take her everywhere I go. And why? I mean, is it like... I said, I love kids when I have kids. I want to have kids, but I couldn't I want to, you know, settle down and get married, but I didn't have no kids. So is it kind of like she's become a kid? Yeah. For me, what astounds me the most is like, the way the eugenicists talk, it's always about the good of society, saving the race, saving the nation, mm. the obsession with the future and with perfection and a master race. They say that it's science, that if you just look, if you read Darwin and you apply his principles, this is how we make a better race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that like they all somehow happen to miss in On the Origin of Species is how frequently... Darwin talks about one thing, this one ingredient that he marvels at. He doesn't understand why it's there, but it is the thing to which we all owe our existence on Earth. What is that one ingredient? Variation. Variation, it is the engine of natural selection, of of beings being created more perfectly. It, It is what... You know, when a gene pool is too homogenous, it's weaker. Mm-hmm. And so the eugenicists, by breeding out variation, were in a way foiling their very own plot of building a master race. Yeah. Like, who gets to say what we need? You know? Yeah. Do we, there's a humility built into the theory of natural selection, which yes. just gets immediately, um, immediately distorted with social Darwinism. Right. Because it's like, we decide. Exactly. And I think that oftentimes... 
this story seems like it's past tense, like it's over. But that hubris is still in our laws today. I mean, I talked earlier about those laws, which are supposedly different from the eugenic sterilization laws, the laws where you're allowed to sterilize someone in their best interests. Those statutes are still controversial. As Paul Lombardo explains, when you really dig down into the language, these laws are still saying there are some times when we should be making the decision for someone else about whether or not they should have children. I think your inclination is correct. There are reports of abuse, and there certainly are opportunities for abuse in this case. Um, these are powers of the state which we should, um, which we should be incredibly suspicious of. Hey, um, this is Pat. I just, I just want to jump in quick. Uh, first of all, this, this story is so intense. Um, but I, and I guess I just kind of have one question at the end about, about that last thing you were talking about, Lulu. Yeah. So, so there are these, these laws that are different than the eugenic sterilization laws that I guess still allow for, uh, involuntary sterilization, like by a parent or guardian, um, I guess I just wondered, like, did, have you heard of that happening? Yeah, no, I talked to parents. I talked to parents, two parents, actually, who are struggling with this right now. I talked to a mom who has a son with severe disabilities and who's approaching adulthood. Um, she's, like, watching him, you know, grow into a man's body with man's desires and thinking about sex. Oh, and, and she's, like, worried that he would get someone pregnant. Yeah, and worrying that, like, she doesn't think there'd be any way he'd be able to care for a kid. Mm. And so in her mind, she has entertained the thought, like, would he oddly be able to live a freer life if he could have sex and have romantic relationships without the worry of getting somebody pregnant? Yeah. Wow, what yeah, a, which, that, is, that is just like a, an impossibly difficult place to be sitting as a parent. Yeah, I think that there are parents, family members grappling with this question in a really private, hard way. Like, is there some line where someone is so severely disabled they should not be allowed to have kids? Mm, okay, so in those type of situations... Um, this is Ivanova Smith, the historian and disabilities advocate we heard from before. And when I talked to her about this, she says that when it comes to looking for that line... I think it's really dangerous because that line moves. And so having that line is, is uh, I, I get what you're saying, that there needs to be a line, there needs to be some point. But at the same time, my fear and many of people in the disability community's fear is that it's arbitrary, and it, it all depends on, like, the policies and the politics. And, like, who's deciding where that line is? Is it a parent, a guardian, someone appointed by the state? All of that. It's scary for us, I guess. For the disability community, it's scary to talk about the line because that means we have to leave somebody out. Like, and Ivanova says if she had been born in a different time or even slightly different circumstances— she would have been left out. If I had not been adopted, I would have been way below that line. Wow. So where did you, where were you an orphan? I was in Soviet-occupied Latvia. And I, I was born with club feet in both of my feet. 
and they diagnosed me with my developmental disabilities, and they diagnosed me with autism, and um, I never learned my native language because the the orphanage was never able to teach me my native language. And I lived and in the orphanage. You weren't for, speaking at all. I, at I, I was babbling when I was five and a half. And soon after that, she was adopted by an American couple. I came to Washington State and um, eventually learned to talk. Went to school, which could be difficult because, as she puts it, she had a very visible disability. Like I rock. So she'd be sitting there in her chair, moving her body back and forth. The way that my movements are, it's just kind of awkward. Had learning disabilities. I also am a, uh, I have a hard time regulating my emotions sometimes. She'd have a little outbursts, break down in tears. So sometimes I need, like, support. In, but she kept going, made it through school, eventually started dating. We dated for 10 years before we got married, and then... Um, I had no idea that that one Valentine's Day that we decided not to use a condom. In 2017, she got pregnant, and she was terrified. A lot of my peers were like, oh, you shouldn't have kids. And Her whole and life, basically, people had been telling her, like, you can't be a mother. You would be dangerous. And she had started to believe them. I agreed with them. She worried about all these things. Yeah, like I wouldn't, like I would forget to feed them. Or like, I have uh, death perception issues. And so I was like afraid that I would like trample over them. Mm. Or like drop them. And worse than that. I don't understand other people's emotions. And so I was scared that I would not have that nurturing feeling. Like she'd look at the baby and just feel confused or nothing. And I remember calling my mom when I found out that, you know, I was pregnant. I, was, I told my mom I was scared. But my mom was like, I'll be here for you and we're going to get through this. And this is going to be, a, and this is, we are so excited. Like they were so excited. When I first went to the doctor to confirm the pregnancy test, mm-hmm. there was a nurse trying to give me paperwork about the abortion pills. And I said it to them then. There's this little human being inside me. And I'm going to raise, I'm going to do my best to love them. I'm scared to death. I'm terrified. But I'm going to do the best I can. And I didn't start really enjoying it until she came out of me hmm. and they put her on me little tiny little thing this little peanut she has the biggest eyes like i usually cannot look at people in the eyes but her eyes were just so big and she looked wide-eyed at me and and i just i i like all of those like nurturing instincts i think it just came at once i i knew what to do i was to cuddle her and sn- I gave her snuggles. She doesn't care that I rock and she doesn't care that I talk to myself. She's just a happy little snuggle and she loves me unconditionally and I love her and I think she's made me a better person. Creating that little human, it was the most amazing moment of my life. Uh, and, and she's just such a blessing. You know, I can't imagine life without that little girl. And, you know, there was, there was that one time where I would have been told that it would have been for my best interest to have been sterilized. And, and what do you say to somebody who just says, you know, oh, 
you, you know, you rock or you stim and you get, you get so, you have a meltdown getting on the bus and you might not, you can't drive her and, and you shouldn't, that they worry about her safety. I mean, what do you say to them? What do you say to someone who still thinks, oh no, is, is your little girl going to be okay in your care? Um, I would say to them that, um, okay, do you, do you, do you see that in my little girl's face? <laughs> oh, the little lamb, she's going to tickle a peanut. That little lamb is tickling a peanut. Do you see that when she's laughing? Her little heart out when I'm giving her a hug. Where's the yellow one, though? Where's that yellow cheek? Do you see that when she's coming to me saying, mooty, 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 you know? That's right. Yep, that's yellow. That's the yellow Jeep. I, 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 would, I would tell them to presume competence, to presume that we could be good parents. Give us that, that chance. Reporter Lulu Miller. Lulu has a book coming out soon. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist. And it's all about the dangers of trying to order the world. It's partly about that scientist, David Starr Jordan, and partly about her own life. You can find a link to pre-order it on our website, radiolab.org, or hers, lutimes2.com. This episode was produced by Matt Kilty, Lulu Miller, and me. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris, and special thanks to Sarah Luderman, Lynn Rainville, Alex Minna-Stern, Steve Silberman, and Lydia X.Z. Brown. Lulu's reporting was partially supported by the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists, and Radiolab's G is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone in the process of science. We'll be back next week with the fifth episode of G. To play the message, press 2. Start of message. This is Ivanova Smith. Radio Lab was created by Dave Abumad and is produced by Sharon Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lipsberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon L. Elder, Becca Bursler, Rachel Keswick, David Gibble, Bethel Hoskies, Tracy Hunty, Nora Keller, Matt Kelpy, Robert Kalswick, Anna McEwen, Letta Nessa, Melissa O'Daniel, Daryl Sarah Gilly, Irina Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With the help of Seema 
O L I E W Heavy Fortuna Good Samuel Armana Leonard Leonard Neo Sasa and our fast setter is Ma- Marcel Harris. End of message.